Veronica Saragovia. And in this story, in the Goethe Institute series about mistakes, we'll look at happy accidents in the invention of plastics. Over time, plastics evolved through trial and error. Inventors didn't usually set out to have a eureka moment. Instead, they've had to test things out, make errors like creating flammable plastics before getting to their useful discovery. Today, so much of our built world depends on plastics, and yet we grapple with how to embrace them while also caring for the environment. But I certainly don't think that we would be where we are today without plastic. One person who has particularly mixed feelings about this is my younger brother, Sebastian, in Fort Lauderdale. He tries really hard not to use many of those single-use plastics, like yogurt cups that you just get rid of after one use. But at the same time, he, he tells me so many things in his apartment are made out of plastics. I can readily see tons of things that are plastic. For example, the... The door of my washing machine, my dryer, dish detergent bottles, soap bottles that are, that are plastic, the polyurethane wheels on my longboard. That longboard is like a skateboard. Sometimes he takes it out along the boardwalk near the ocean. A very sunny South Florida thing to do. Right now, I'm living close by to him in my father's home in Miami. Each week, we put out our recyclables in a big black, and yes, plastic bag. A gallon of water bottle. And we step on those to flatten them out so they fit in the bag. The local solid waste department picks up our bag every Friday. The bag size has ballooned ever since I got here. I believe most of this ends up in a landfill. Luckily, my father Angelo is far more optimistic. 99% he says in Spanish that 99% of the single-use plastics we have here at our home go into this bag for recycling. It's our contribution to preserving the environment. Now, I came here from Berlin where often the background to my thoughts sounded more like this, as opposed to waves. In my apartment in Germany, I had to sort things out carefully for recycling. You couldn't just dump all sorts of different materials into one bag. This careful process is something Wolfgang Meyer knows about. I am the principal of Plastics Business Consultants. He grew up in Western Germany, where he studied mechanical engineering. It was thanks to an unexpected internship around 1969 that led him to a career in plastics. His college courses at the time were paused because there was a student strike going on at the time. So he went to intern with the Plastics Application Development Department at Bayer. And he says that's how he learned a lot about plastics. I mean, in college, we had practically no real plastics education. I keep kidding about this, that this happened on one Friday afternoon. They didn't really offer this study path in Germany at the time. Today, he's passionate about helping the next generation get into this industry. He focuses a lot of his time as the president of the Plastics Pioneers Association on tuition scholarships. Students at colleges and universities may get funding to study topics like plastics engineering, polymer science, chemical engineering, and product design. He's a big supporter of plastics, pointing out how they're lightweight and safe energy, they're used for medicine. Just banning plastics 
and a life without plastics in all these areas is just unthinkable. Speaking to experts like him made me look at the plastics in my own life, and I'm observing them in a different way. From the time my alarm clock goes off in its plastic case, I see plastics everywhere, and so many times a day too, like this green soap bottle. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 20 seconds Happy each time to disinfect my hands. From all the books out there on plastics, I was drawn to Susan Frankel's. She's the author of the book Plastic, a toxic love story. In her book, she documents how it came to be that our modern world is made out of plastics and the fascinating stories behind the discoveries. She also describes her own list of plastics she made in her home and how it kept getting longer as she found stuff that didn't seem at first glance like it had plastics. Things like my dog leash, which was nylon, which is a kind of plastic. Or I looked at the doorknob, which I had always thought was a brass doorknob, and I realized, oh, it's actually not. It's, it's just plastic painted to look like brass. I have a bad addiction to carbonated soft drinks. And just as Frankel was surprised to find that the doorknobs were actually plastic, I was surprised to find out that there's a plastic lining inside aluminum cans. I learned from Frankel, though, how it's a good thing that billiard balls are made out of plastics. They used to be made out of ivory, which required killing elephants for their tusks. The man that made this discovery in the late 1860s is John Wesley Hyatt. He worked as a printer in New York State, and one day he saw an ad in a newspaper offering $10,000. Gold for any quote-unquote inventive genius who could come up with an alternative to ivory billiard balls. The game had become really popular. So much so that people were afraid. There was the demand for ivory to make billiard balls was driving elephants into extinction. So Hyatt read that ad and he thought, okay, you know, let me see if I can come up with something to replace ivory billiard balls. He built himself a, you know, little workshop behind his house, spent some time, a couple of years tinkering with different things. And he comes up with a mix of cellulose and other chemicals. It had a shoe leather consistency and he called it celluloid. It could be made to look like other rare materials too, like tortoise shell or coral. That sort of showed, you know, the democratizing effect of plastic. Hyatt was working from a problem. There was this scarce natural resource. We needed to find a substitute for it. He figured out a way to make a substitute that was made from plastic. Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm going to plug my headphones in. Hang on. Can you hear me? I call Susan Mossman in London using FaceTime. She's the vice chair of the Plastics Historical Society in London. She tells me how John Hyatt and his brother Isaiah took credit for celluloid. Well, because they made a completely fantastic commercial success of it. But here's a mistake. Celluloid was also flammable. What's more, he capitalized on someone else's invention that also had flaws. Some 20 years before Hyatt, British inventor Alexander Parks created a material called Parkinson. In the late 1840s, it was a precursor to celluloid, and it was brittle, expensive, and had quality control problems. Later on, Parks' company even went bankrupt. Now, around this time, shellac was used to paint on coils. Shellac is a resin secreted from female bugs, but it melts at high temperatures. 
It took almost half a century before someone came up with a material that did not melt. Leo Hendrik Bakeland, a Belgium-born chemist who was eager to discover a substitute. And he knew he needed to be first. And he writes that, he says it in his diaries, I need to be first. So Bakeland set up a lab behind his house in Yonkers, New York. He didn't mind getting his hands dirty. He didn't mind repeating a lot of experiments. Extreme stubbornness. I will continue this. This is experiment number 635. And it's probably going to be as useless as 634. But it leads me to 780, where I then have circumscribed that entire area and know if there's gold there, I will find it. And he was the type of person that was going to get the solution. The recent documentary, All Things Bakelite, The Age of Plastic by John Marr, brings us into his lab, where he invented a fully synthetic plastic using phenol and formaldehyde. That means all of it could be made in a lab. He called it Bakelite and patented it in 1909. Lots of people are fascinated by Bakeland and his process. Joris Merceles is the author of Beyond Bakelite and a professor at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Merceles says Bakelite contributed to a growing acceptance of other synthetic materials too. People started to think about them as not just being inferior substitutes, for natural materials, which had been a common attitude during World War I, for example. Um, so in those early years, Bakelands and his associates really had to convince people to, to, to accept that Bakelite was not just an inferior substitute for, for materials like, like amber. At the time, inventors like Bakeland, who were based in the U.S., felt motivated to come up with innovations because of competition across the Atlantic. Before World War I, many chemists in America were kind of uh, envious about uh, what chemists in other countries had accomplished, especially in Germany, which was, which was a real leader in, uh, in the discipline of chemistry. And, and several, some earlier uh, synthetic products that had been invented, had been, had been invented in Germany, things like synthetic dyes, synthetic pharmaceuticals. Bakeland went from trying to replace a product like smelly camphor that reeks of mothballs to Bakelite. Bakelite doesn't melt. There was nothing like it, and it could be molded into any shape. And so it was used for practical things like phones and radios, but also jewelry. They could make intricate carvings on bracelets for women. Even Andy Warhol, the pop artist, collected these. Established designers were commissioned to make Bakelite products like for home decor. You can find round and sleek Bakelite-made lamps on eBay for hundreds of dollars, designed by Germany's Bauhaus. Decades later, in 1965, the chemist Stephanie Kwolek had her own happy mistake. She worked at DuPont, where around that time her male colleagues were busy. And they left me alone. <laughs> and I was able to experiment on my own. And I found this very stimulating. It appealed to the creative person in me. Here she is in a video from the Science History Institute, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She was working on creating a synthetic material that could make lighter tires. That's because there was a possible shortage of gasoline looming at the time. And consumers wanted a better fuel economy, which meant replacing the steel wire in tires. In the course of that work, 
I made a discovery. She ended up creating a liquid solution that could be turned into fibers five times stronger than steel. I knew that I had made a discovery. I didn't shout Eureka, <laughs> but I was very excited. Kevlar is made from these fibers. Being out space is really the most foreboding, incredibly hostile environment. We can't go into an environment as challenging as that with any doubts. Is my spacesuit going to protect me today? Without the presence of Kevlar, I think it would be terrifying. From 34 million miles above us to several miles below us, and every point in between, you're going to find DuPont Kevlar. Kevlar is pushing the limits on lightweight, fuel-efficient planes. Kevlar is Kevlar lightweight, heat-resistant, and is so strong, it's used in things like bulletproof vests. Kevlar allows us to do these things that haven't been possible before. Spacecrafts, helmets, and protective gloves. Today, we're surviving on plastic gloves, but a different kind, the ones we're putting on to avoid getting infected with COVID-19. Mossman of the Plastic Historical Society points to how vital plastics have been in treating the new coronavirus and fighting it. Those plastic visors that they use when they're going close in the level three and four um, contact with patients, they're made of a whole range of different plastics. It could be polycarbonate, it could be PET, they might have other bits of foam in there, there might be acrylics, all those type of um, bits and pieces. The, the rubber gloves, they're usually either neoprene or latex rubber, those type of materials. Um, the clothing, again, for the high level, um, I suppose particularly hazardous contact with patients, they'll use um, polyethylene coated materials, polythene coated, I mean the technical name is polyethylene, um, but there might be layers of another plastics material on, uh, underneath. Also take the ventilators for breathing that are made out of plastics. I can't negate the importance of plastics while also worrying about their impact. I spoke to Shelley Wilkes-Gear about this. She works as a director at the Science History Institute and focuses a lot on education and outreach. She worked as part of a team that created a curriculum for students in schools to engage in role-playing within the world of plastics. In this way, the students discuss and learn about all the different viewpoints, just as we're doing in this story. Not everything that improves your life is entirely without consequence. And uh, that does not mean that you shouldn't embrace these things. It means that you need to um, mitigate those consequences when need be. And it just feels like plastics is the perfect material to consider this from and uh, hopefully is a launching point for students who go through the full curriculum to um, develop that ability to think about many, many things. Wolfgang Meyer of the Plastics Pioneers Association says we also have to take responsibility for how we dispose of things. My opinion is that plastics does not pollute, people do. And so it's, it's up to people to keep the ocean clean. And as Susan Frankel pointed out when we spoke, everything we use has trade-offs. It's not black and white, you know? It's, it's, we have to sort of, we're always gonna be walking a sort of ambivalent line in our relationship to plastic. 
Here in Florida, I'll be walking that ambivalent line in plastic flip-flops for a long while. This transatlantic story was brought to you by the Goethe Institute. Find out more on our website, goethe.de slash USA. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.